Namo tassa bhagavato rato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato rato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato rato samma sambuddhasa udang dhammang sangang namasami So today is uh, uh, the day before the Katinna, which is the big uh, almsgiving ceremony of the year, festival. It's uh, interesting to make a, a festival out of um, out of a Katinna, because a Katinna is just the uh, uh, the name for an old kind of loom that they would put cloth on or frame in order to stitch it into a robe. It was like a sort of made it easier like a template you could put your cloth over this container thing and it will give you an idea of how to size things up how to square things up and make it into a robe it's hardly the thing to really want to make a big deal out of you wouldn't think <laughs> and yet it is uh, probably the biggest uh, most populous event of the year because it uh, in, the, in the way that human beings are it's it's evolved into a occasion of what goes on around that which is the the giving of of requisites starts off with giving cloth or robes and then people well we're going to give cloths or robes well let's give other things as well so um, it's become a massive uh, uh, gathering of generosity for the for the monasteries it's quite incredible really this actually attracts more people than dhamma talks (laughs) meditation retreats is the sense of being able to participate in, in an act of generosity uh, so it's quite something because you can't you can't uh, you know you can't the monks the monks and nuns can't actually get do a katina you have to let the lay community do it so we can't we can't ask for one or initiate one it has to come through people saying hey i want to do this this year i want to do it next year and then you can say fine okay then it's up to you to organize it and then people actually make big effort throughout the year to organize these things it's quite incredible and uh three four hundred people turn up um just to be part of that isn't this interesting you know uh, bigger than christmas i never had christmas with that many people and it was six of us sitting around a telly eating mince pies on christmas day that was it <laughs> But uh, you know, particularly when you consider that this Buddhism is supposed to be a very introspective, kind of quiet, tranquil uh, cultivation religion, where you're all going quiet and internal and looking for things to cease. That, that sense, you know, this, this is the kind of uh, idea we can have a Buddhism really kind of cold and clear, and just being around rather, bearing up with having a human form and putting up with it with all this misery 
until eventually the thing ceases, thank goodness, and we're out of this misery. <laughs> and meanwhile, we're trying to kind of withdraw into some space in the back of our heads where we can just kind of watch this pathetic show going on. And somehow then, you know, so you can have that take on, on Buddhism, but then actually when you see it being lived out, people are quite happy and cheerful and like gathering together and laugh a lot and uh, join in and, and um, seem to enjoy each other's company. Not particularly want to be uh, rendered extinct or cease, but quite happy to be uh, manifesting. And of course, we, where it comes together really is the sense of what it's not, uh, what ceases. It's not, you know, what ceases is, is misery. Uh, <laughs> what ceases is alienation. What ceases is, uh, is, uh, hard-hearted. Not what ceases is aversion. What ceases is lust. What ceases. Is, so it's, that's what we're looking to cease, not to cease the sense, have the sense of, uh, of our, uh, of, um, humanity ceasing but of these terrible blights on humanity ceasing and so generosity and sharing and participation you know in these things do people have an instinct for hey this gets me out of of this kind of endless sense of what i am what i should be what i could be what am i doing in my life and you just participate in something much bigger and good-hearted and it lifts you up very simple, because actually this is this is something human beings like to do. It's not just Buddhist, but everywhere you go in these religious things, you get uh, kind of ceremonies and festivals where it doesn't really matter what the religion is. It's basically people like to get together and do something that's kind of moral and uh, and generous and sharing, and everybody participates in it. Fellowship, good fellowship which isn't based upon competition or power or, or um, even getting, getting, that, getting that close to people. It's a strangely, um, you know, it's kind of friendly, but it's not, you're not really bonding to individuals. So this is, a, you know, kind of mi- interesting middle way. Hmm. For gathering, because what it does for a contemplative is you start to use these occasions and the human experience and relationships and acting, working together to, to build up some um, strengths and some open your heart and uh, feel a sense of what you can bring forth and, and you, so at the end of the day you're left reflecting on that, feeling that sense of, of ease or happiness uh, that comes from that and what Doing something that you feel is good in a simple way. Today also was our, as our observance day when we take the precepts, <coughs> take precepts and so on. And you might think, well, surely once is enough. Once a lifetime's enough, you've got the message by now. We do it every two weeks as if we're, you know, as if we forget them. It's not. <laughs> That you forget them, but just that you you go through that that mental act of picking up and firming up and establishing morality and virtue and commitment and scrupulousness and and honesty and actually sharing what you've done something wrong. You share that with your fellow summoners. So this is another sense in which we 
we um, use these occasions to to um, firm up our minds. And these are purely occasions. You know, it doesn't really matter what day it is or what country it is or who's involved. They're, they're acts of communion. They're acts of communion. Where for that time, whether you're taking the precepts together or chanting together or meditating together or doing a uh, uh, working together like we were today, sweeping up and putting out carpets and 101 things that need to be done to 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 get a, this occasion going. We're just, you know, participating in something, um, and there's no, you know, it's kind of s- selfless in a conventional sense, in a limited sense. In that nobody's making a big I am project out of it, or we're just or tipping our individuality into a big melting pot and just flowing along with it. And in the end of the day, you can kind of contemplate that result. This is helpful energetically and emotionally, psychologically. You get insight with that. Mm. It is energetically, what I mean by that is that very often modern life is, is quite isolated. That is, you're, you're on your own. You walk through a city, there's a million people around you, and yet you feel you're kind of held in yourself, like you're holding yourself together. You know, you're, you're inside your own little envelope. There's other people moving around inside their envelopes, inside their little bubbles. These just bubbles moving around through a situation. Nobody really looks at anybody else or communicates. People blip away on their mobile phones, but nobody is actually with anybody else who's around them physically. We're all walking around in our own little boxes, moving around. And there's a real sense of, of, of holding yourself. Sometimes it's almost like you're armoring yourself against, the, against all the stuff on the street. You know, if you're driving a car or uh, you're looking out for collisions. Um, if you're moving through a space, you, you're making sure you can get where you're going without somebody getting in your way. You know, sometimes you go around these, people go around a supermarket with these trolleys. It's like gladiators, people kind of crashing and weaving through each other. It's, Excuse me, barge, barge, sorry about that. Shoving to get to the top of the line. <laughs> so it's, it's not a, it's not a, even though there's a thousand people around in a place like that, everybody's very much on their own, in their own space, in their own box. And there's an energetic kind of um, armoring that goes around on or quite tight constricted and that has an effect most people are quite jumpy high speed nervy uh, talking uh, thinking quickly thinking thinking quickly and these are all signs of a constricted when the energy is constricted when we're not in at ease when we're not able to soften we get jumpy and we get nervy and we get defensive and we, you know, we don't really tune into what's going on around us. We just want to get through it to the next thing, you know, get on to the next bit. And unfortunately, this is the way that a lot of people find themselves living their lives, spending their time. So one of the attractions of a of a of a big ceremony or, or festival is a chance to to actually come out of that. Where you're not, it's no, you're not having to get anywhere in a hurry. There's no competition. Everybody's going to get fed. It doesn't matter where you are in the line. 
um, and things are given away. You see, you know, everybody's just giving something away. Tomorrow there'll be kinds of books and CDs and things to give away, and uh, you know, and it's nobody has to pay anything or deserve anything or be examined or scrutinized or have you worked hard enough for this you know <laughs> Where, who do you think you are it's all open and just being part of that is, is a really lovely experience in itself on an, on an energetic level some of this tension we have around ourselves our self-consciousness can dissolve and with that there comes a uh, kind of an emotional uh, warmth comes with that again which is very precious now, when you're emotion, when you're energetically kind of def- defended and jumpy and in your own space, you can't get this same sense of in- emotional warmth. You can get kind of passion, you can get anger, and you can get lust, but you can't get this sense of easy, happy warmth with other other beings because that energetic um, box, that defendedness, constricts constricts our hearts and that's part of the sadness of it isn't it how you can be in a modern modern life with so many apparently wonderful things for sale and offers and art galleries and libraries and exhibitions and things you can buy and things like that still feel quite miserable in it because we're walking around tight and worrying about ourselves and uh not feeling happy with with other beings, and yet an occasion like tomorrow where none of that's available. There's no exhibitions. There's no entertainments. There's no singing. There's no dancing. Nothing special is going to happen. Apart from sit here, take the precepts, chant, chat, drink tea, listen to a talk, and go home again. I mean, it's, if you put that up on a <laughs> on a brochure as, and you know come to Chithurst, this is what will happen. You'll sit there, take precepts, eat some food, drink some tea, listen to a talk on, on the weariness of existence. <laughs> and then go home again. Think, well, who'd want to go to that? <laughs> and yet people really enjoy these things. <laughs> because you don't really need that much. What, do you, what we do need to do is to, to undo our, our tension and our isolation and our sense of wariness and, and discomfort around other beings. <laughs> to feel welcome, to feel welcome in the universe. That's what's needed. And it's actually, you see, this gives you an insight into how it happens. It doesn't happen through filling yourself up with stuff. <laughs> it happens through releasing things. That's a major piece of insight because it can feel you can feel this sense of staleness or boredom or things aren't quite right, and it's a bit like having this hungry hole, a hungry space. You think, well, I'll pop something in there to fill it up with food. Okay, okay. Yeah, so what? Um, things I can buy. Yeah, fill it up. Places I can go. Yeah, fill it up. Still not filling up that hole. Uh, problem is that we perceive that experience as being a hole or something we lack. It's actually not a hole, it's a block. 
It means we're not. It's, it's not something we lack. It's something we're not doing. It's not the, not something you can fill up. It's like a block. It's like a tension, an unconscious block. You can't. So you can't fill up a block. What you need to do with the block is release it, undo it. Yeah. And you undo it through things like generosity and sharing and participation and friendliness and uh, that's how you undo it. And suddenly that, that whole, oh, I feel happy. I feel quite comfortable with myself. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's just the way we use things of the world things of the world sometimes sense of world can be almost be pejorative in 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 buddhist language but this is the way we use the world that goes against the, the ignorance of the world that goes against the currents of it we use occasions forms actions things that are everybody can do you don't have to be a genius or even you know that that bright but you can participate and share, generous, so on. It's the way you use it. And it uses it so that you come to uh, some really valuable realizations and some sense of self-respect and uh, feeling of comfort with other beings. This is very much the, the, the standard in this, uh, in the, monastic world, the summoner world, whereby which the lay community participate in. So it's really interesting because you know in a way it's it can be quite close and quite poignant and, and deeply felt and yet it's also sort of impersonal. It's a particular way of relationship. Not this, you know, you can do it other ways. But the, because the sum of the life is based upon uh, change and people moving around, as you notice now there's quite a lot of people, uh, monks and nuns here, and sometimes there's a lot less changes. People come for a week or a month or a year, two years, move on, five years, move on, somebody else comes in, so on. It's like that. And that's his basis. Uh, it's like uh, there's no community but there's communion, no fixed community. But there are occasions when we have this experience of communing, which is our, for us, is our fortnightly taking the precepts, festival days, sometimes work projects. Next next week, we've been the forest work project, which people generally enjoy, um, because it's a chance when a lot of pe- you know, people work together out in the woods, chopping logs, stacking things, Again, if you put it up as a tourist attraction, you wouldn't get anybody turning up. But <laughs> as a as an exercise in in uh, contemplation and in uh, just um, you know uh, being out in nature and helping, getting that night that good feeling, it's it's very healing because it, it it takes us out of our out of our narrowness, out of our where we can get views, opinions, who's this, who's that, what we should be. It takes us out of that world of theory and idealism. 
and, and which can be so clear but also so bleak and heartless. You try to put an get an ideal and then stick it on a human being. You know, there's two things, one of two things is going to happen. <laughs> one is the human being gets severely cropped, <laughs> censored and, and trapped, or, or, or the ideal starts to get flexed. And well, this is the ideal, but well, you know. And ideals are very attractive because they are so, um, so clear. And it gives us a sense of real knowing exactly where we are and uh, getting it all sorted out and lined up straight, and, you know. And certainly in our Buddhist world, we have this too. You know, the, you know we have the ideals of the purest, strictest vinya discipline, clearest, most exemplary Dhamma teachings which is exactly in line with the Pali Canon and Abhidharma an excellent analysis of every mental factor uh, and it is all quite quite dazzling stuff really Buddhist philosophy, Buddhist metaphysics Nagarjuna people like that you know, so you get all this incredibly high minded stuff But then one way to make yourself go feel totally miserable is to start to read something like Buddha Gosa's um, manuals on meditation and expect your mind to, to be like that. <laughs> to be able to do that. So often when I do a meditation, the last thing I want to do is read these meditation manuals. Because they're, they're true, but they're not right. They're, it sounds good. But then in actuality... You know, mind doesn't fit it. It's how to, you know, work with this karmic formation, and that's something there's no real book on. You know, there, you know any book isn't going to do it. It's going to give you suggestions, ideas, things to look out for, but then you've got to work it out yourself as a human, and that's that's why. You know, we, we keep those ideas, those ideals, those high standards. So yeah, this is the good, the best. We can hold that in one part of our mind, one part of our system, like a template, like that's the katina, the frame, and you have to spread your own cloth on it and see how it fits. <laughs> yeah. And the cloth is your own mind. So I generally have a, a personal um, standard that I use, which is I try to look at what's there in the theory, then I look at um, what's how uh, l- l- people I, I, I respect, how they actually practice that, what qualities they have, and I look into my own mind. And with the three come together, I feel well, that seems about right. I don't want to believe in my mind, but also I don't want to disregard it. I don't want to believe in other people, but also I don't want to disregard them. I don't want to just become, you know, uh, I want to be like so-and-so. You know, trying to copy other people, but at the same time, other teachers and masters, at the same time, I don't want to ignore them either. You know, look in the, the scriptures and the books, I don't want to ignore all that, say it's all just, you know, 
archaic or theory or up in your head. No, my head's part of my body. <laughs> That's why I shouldn't be able to think. But thinking, looking at these ideas, looking at how other respect people I respect, or I feel that sense of confidence in how they're practicing and looking to my own mind and put the three together and work it around that reference. Yeah. So this human frame of the, the human cloth, you might say, of our own karma has to be spread upon this particular template of, of practice theory, practice ideas, and uh, you know, see how it fits. See what comes out. See what robe you can make for yourself in it. What kind of practice you can make for yourself out of that. And it can be, uh, it doesn't have to be, it can be quite an enjoyable occasion. Learning, learning about yourself. Now this, using this, uh, in this this form, it's it's both intimate and yet kind of impersonal. Because people are coming, if you want to have it intimate and personal, then you need a, a, a very long-term uh, relationship with, you know, either a fixed community of half a dozen people or so, or one person where you're really going to work it out. You know, you put your stuff quite explicitly on the table. But when people are changing all the time, you can't do that to the same extent. Because you're just getting to know somebody and they move off. And you're starting to kind of be able to trust each other, then she leaves. And then when you're starting to feel you've overcome some difficulties with this person, and he's gone. You know? And then somebody else comes, you've got to start the whole process again. So over time, what happens is you say, well, you know, the, the, the relation, the, the, it's more, less explicit, more implicit. That is, we all know basically things like, Fear and and uh, jealousy and warm-heartedness and uh, uh, the fact that we all have karma, all have difficult obstructive forces that none of us see things exactly the same as anybody else. We all recognise that. We all understand that. Let's hope we do. So that that understanding acts as our crucible, whereby we see well, you know. You work that out because you begin to recognize whatever view or perception I have or whatever view or idea he has, it's just that. Views, this is right, this is good, this is the way, this is true, this is actual. Uh, this is proper and so forth, are useful guidelines, the useful frames. And they can be terrible um, execution blocks as well. We chop other people up. Chop ourselves up. So you can't really live without views, but but, the thing to remember is a view... Any view, any opinion, any statement about ourselves or others or Dhamma is only as good as one's capacity to use it skillfully. There's this famous uh, sutta called the Water Snake Sutta where the Buddha says uh, the Dhamma itself 
is like a snake. <laughs> he said, if you grab it behind the head, and then you, you, you can make use of it skillfully. If you grab it by the tail, it whips around and bites you. Yeah, so you've got to use, when he's talking about the Dhamma, he means his teachings. You've got to use them in the right way. If you grab it the wrong way, wrongly grasped, it turns into a venomous snake. It's an interesting thing for Buddha to say about his own teachings. He later goes on to say another simile, the raft, that it's like some, Dhamma is like a raft, the teachings are like a raft. You use them to get across the other shore. You don't carry the raft around on your head. You know, you just use it for where you want to go. And it gives us an indication that, that where we're going to is really something that can't be said, explained, uh, can't be laid out, can't be manifested in words, ideas, theories, anything like that. And yet we you can use, we use theories, ideas and so forth and our own lives in the right way it takes us across. And that's the, the kind of consummate view really is to understand the cause and effect. What good does holding this view do to me and to you? Does it do good? Then we'll follow it to as far as it goes. Does it cause harm? Then we'll put it aside. Does it cause division and conflict? We'll put it aside. Does it bring harmony and ease? We'll gather it up. But still it's only a view and it takes us to something that can never be said or explained. Yeah. And just kind of really, you know, bear this in mind because there's a passion that we all have. And this passion has to be transmuted. And there can be passion which is involved with sensuality. We have to transmute that with generosity, with loving kindness, with, uh, with mindfulness, with composure, with actually with mindfulness of the body with samadhi, you start to transmute this passion for the senses through that. There's a passion for views, uh, a sense of getting it all lined up nice and clear. And this can be a a, a passion that we don't necessarily recognize. And people are doing this all the time. Political views, religious views, Trying to get things straight so things will run better. That's the idea. Good idea. We do it, so, you know. Problem is that it's only, that it's only partial and there are different views, differences in views, which is the right one. And this feeling of right has got a passion to it. And wrong has another passion to it. You can use those words, you can sometimes feel yourself, you really believe in those words, you can feel your passion flood the body. Right and wrong. But when you come out of that, when you witness the results of that, that empowerment that comes with a, with a passion of a view, 
And the Buddha said, I know this passion that comes with this view. He gave a whole teaching on views. The Brahmajala Sutta says, I understand the, this view, the attraction of it, the danger of it, and the escape from it. You, know, you can feel any particular view. It's got to, when you get, feel right with it, you know, there's only one God. Wow. You know, this is it. We've got it. Theravada is the only way. Well, we've got it. Ajahn so and so is enlightened being, and I believe everything he says. Well, I really got that. You know, charged up. Then somebody says, Well, no, I don't think it's so good. What do you mean? You know, Theravada is kind of good, but it's a bit, it's low, it's Hinayana, it's kind of one wheel, little vehicle for neurotic summoners who haven't got the grandeur. What do you mean? You want the Mahayana, the great way. Great way is impure, later teachings, full of all kinds of quirky, non-Buddhist, non-pure things the Buddha never said. Mahayana for you. Sorted them out. And we're not going to recognize as Mahayanists, as true Buddhists. And Mahayanists aren't going to recognize us as really true either. So we won't recognize each other. That was sorted out. <laughs> so you get this kind of fractioning, uh, fragmenting in the kind of Buddhist world. And this is the karma, you know, of, of holding the, onto views. This is particular karma, you know, the result of that. When you look into your mind, your mind isn't really Theravada, Mahayana, Buddhist or anything. It hasn't got there yet. It doesn't need to be there. But it is it is uh, insecure, it is uh, anxious, it is loving, it is fearful, it is jealous, it is spiteful, it is uh, wise, it is compassionate. It's all kinds of things. That's what it is. And we, you know, Steer it. And then you don't, you start to recognize whenever, you know, you get this flood of, of passion for anything, for or against, then this is the wake up call. Just think, is it possible for any person to be 100% right? Any of you, be 100% right? Is there any thought you have that's 100% right? Absolutely right, all the time, right. Now, if you think there is, I think you'd better go and see a doctor. (laughs) Or just relax a little bit, maybe. Is there anything you consider to be 100% wrong? Well, surely killing people must be wrong. And they say, well, what if somebody, you know, jumps at you with a knife and you knock them over? Killing animals is wrong. What about fishermen who've got nothing else to eat? Well, you know, 
um, must be something that's 100% wrong. 100% right and 100% wrong. We can, you can't, if it's just karma, cause and effect that we're involved with and reaping the results of it. Now, if it's something that's 100% right, that would be uh, uh, an absolute truth, reality, wouldn't it? Absolute unchanging reality, if it's 100% right. But check it out. The Buddha's recommendation is that any view, any idea, is only a raft towards the only 100% is not right or wrong. It's beyond that. That's the only 100%. It's called Nibbana. That's the 100%. Everything else is just, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, I agree with you. Well, it could be. Yeah, that works some of the time. For a lot of the people, most of the time, I really recommend that. You know? and it's killing. What about euthanasia? Oh, dear. Difficult one, isn't it? What about abortion? Wrong. What about, well, maybe. <laughs> it's up to them. So some of you just start to move away from this topic and say, well, it's not up to me to say. You know, it's the easy way out. <laughs> because you don't want to be recommending any killing. You don't want to recommend it. But at the same time, if somebody has an abortion, what are you supposed to do? You're damned forever. I say, well, okay, you know, maybe there was, you look at what's happened, what your causes and effects are, what the results are in your own mind, you know, and uh, what can you learn from this? And, uh, you know, about maybe restraint or about taking more care with your sexual activity, something like this, you know. Even that isn't always true, is it? Somebody gets raped. It wasn't their fault. So you start to look at all these things, even precepts that we do, takes very seriously, as about as right as you can get without getting steamed up about it, and violent about it, and nasty about it. But you don't want to get nasty and obsessive and steamed up about it, because we're humans. We're not right or wrong. We're humans. And it's humans that realize Nibbana, not right or wrong. (laughs) Humans using right and wrong in a skillful way is what realizes Nibbana. Right and wrong don't get there. They just just take you to to fixed places. And you just get more fixed. They don't take you out. So we start to contemplate these things. And you can find actually, uh, you know, a day when one hasn't really had a strong view or an opinion about right or wrong or who's better or who's worse or what we should do. And you go, oh, it's quite a good day actually. Um, mind feels quite calm and peaceful. Feel a sense of happiness, having done good. Feel a sense of, of uh, companionship with my fellow humans without really even knowing all their stories. 
Oh, the end result, yeah, I feel pretty good. And then you take that result, contemplate that result, start to get the sense of gladness, joy. Gladness and joy acts as a basis for ease. Ease acts as a basis for for samadhi, for, for resting into breathing, <coughs> resting into your body, resting into skillful mind states and samadhi acts as a basis for release, for letting go of things that are obstructive or or obsessive. And this is how you clear. Of course, you can get passionate about samadhi as well and write about that, how many jhanas you've got, get the book out again, and so on. But again, samadhi is only another conditioned thing that... uh, it's part of the raft. It's not an ultimate aim in itself. So it's how you use it, and uh, how you rest in it, and the wisdom that evolves from that. That is the really important point. How we samadhi is only as good as how you use it. And this uh, it is uh, really uh, quite wonderful because it always places the emphasis back really on our own responsibility. And I think the Buddha was probably the first and maybe the most perfect person in always handing the responsibility back to each individual. He said, there's no gods in to condemn you. There's no ultimate rule book that you've got to follow. There are certain strong guidelines and principles that I teach, but you know, eventually it's up to you and it's only you or that that quality in the human, in each inhuman, that's going to do it. The rest is just, I can give you rafts, I can give you tools, I can give you things, but what is it that rides on it? Is it a person? Is it a self? Is it a what is it? A mind state? And as you travel on that raft, you realize all these all these identities, all these forms start to dissolve. You know, who we are starts to loosen. Who we how we define ourselves starts to ease up. The positions that we found ourselves holding on to start to seem unnecessary and absurd, and it loosens up. Till it's almost as if as we travel on that raft, something in us, we gradually dissolve. So nobody gets there. Nobody gets to the other shore. That's who gets there. Nobody. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? There's a little nobody in, in all of us that's just dying to, to be found. <laughs> and yet most of us are trying to find a somebody in there. You know, plastering it up with beliefs and positions and ideologies and identities and history, firming it up, sometimes with miserable history, firming up identities. So we create a very strong somebody in here who's going to find a way to get out of here. And then there's this terrible conflict with life. Here we try to use life to gradually undo us, unravel us from our complexities and our tightness and our drivenness. 
our passions. So this is uh, tomorrow and today is all part of that that mixture. To my understanding, one of the lovely things about Dharma practice is you can practice it on what we might say many different levels, on introspective level, on silence and stillness, in activity, in in making commitments and vows, uh, having enjoyable time together, doing simple things, um, studying. It's it can be done and it has to be done, I feel, through many channels. So there's not anything left out. There's not any part of us that isn't seen through. <laughs> allowed to manifest and gently sent on its way. Yeah. So I hope that many of you can come tomorrow and uh, uh, let all that arise and dissolve in your wonderful nobody. Anyone?